All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of No Driving Gloves. We uh, did bring in a guest this week. Personally, I I think it's a good interview. Uh, It's a gentleman I've gotten to know fairly well over the last about six to eight months, I'd say. He uh, partners here with us at the National Corvette Museum and uh, Motorsports Park that we have up here in Bowling Green. But I want to welcome race car driver and uh, many other things, Andy Pilgrim, uh, to the podcast. So, Andy, welcome. Thank you so much, Derek. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed working with you so far. Uh, we've done, I think, some pretty fun and interesting things with some of the collection cars here and yeah. some other stuff. Brought you on the show today to talk a little bit more about kind of some of the things you've done in your career, as well as some of the cool things, race career, five championships, 68 races won, and some of those cars you were driving out on the track have less horsepower than production, some production oh. cars today. And we're putting the production, those production cars with higher horsepower into the hands of people who don't have the training that race car drivers yes. of, of your talent have, trusting that they can drive them safely, mm-hmm. which you know, we've talked about on this show before, a lot of distracted driving things. More than talking to you about your racing career, I wanted to bring you on the show because you're doing something that is really kind of near and dear to uh, most of the hosts, all three of the hosts on this show, which is safe driving. Safe driving for the American public. You Mm -hmm. have your, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Traffic Safety Education Foundation. That is exactly right, sir. Exactly right, uh, yes. You're you're doing that. Uh, Part of that is your partnership here with the Museum and Motorsports Park. It's kind of scary to think that out on the street with, 16-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid that just got their license could be in a car that has more horsepower than some of the cars you were racing. What led you, number one, to start your foundation? What was it that really got you passionate about that and made you make the decision to do something that is so needed right now? It really goes back to when I came to the States. Um, I I, I had $106 in my pocket. I knew I had a job didn't actually get paid for three weeks, didn't realize that happened in England. When you get a new job, they basically do a paycheck when they walk in the door because they've assumed you've been sleeping on the streets, right? So you get a paycheck day one and, you know, to, to make up, and that's how it works. You sort of get paid ahead, not behind. But I, I came here simply, I had a job, I had to work hard. Um, $106 was all, all that I had, my savings and everything from England and everything else. And I sold all my bits and paid off the debts with trying to race motorcycle over there and everything else. I got my IT career going quite well. Um, I was working up until 1989 uh, sort of with another company as a manager, and then I started my own little IT consulting company with, and then, uh, with 20 grand that I had, and that was going reasonably well. By the mid-90s, I had my own little company, I had some employees working there, and my racing was going well. By the mid-90s, I'd won my first professional championship. I thought, you know what? These two things are going okay. I can certainly pay my bills. I'm not going to be a rich, rich, wealthy person. It doesn't matter. The point is, life's going okay. My mother and my godmother were really big into charity and giving back, uh, very much so. And, you know, I got dragged to these things when I was a little kid. So essentially, I was looking for something that made sense to me to give back, and it ended up being traffic. It ended up being driving. So I started researching the driving test. I started researching how students are trained, and I saw there was a need. So I started talking, believe it or not, it was back in 1994, actually. I still have notes from the first time I went to my local high school, which was very close to my house where I was living in, in South Florida. And I used the term distracted driving. 
in my notes, and I still have notes on distracted driving. It's always been about distracted driving. The thing is now we, we you know, there's, there's a lot of differentiation, like it's drunk driving issue. There's a lot of people that go have a couple of beers, three beers, every Friday. And I'm not saying they should ever drive if they do that. But the fact of the matter is they've been doing the same thing for 20 years. And then they also now, they're using their phone on the way home. And that's a problem because they're, they may not be quite, they're not impaired to the point that they can't necessarily drive themselves home because they've done it for 20 years. But now they're also trying to use the smartphone because there's nobody out there in the U.S. now that doesn't have one who wants one. And, you know, there's other things like if you're if you're taking your prescription medications, then you were concentrating on trying to drive because, you know, you're probably impaired slightly. But you're also trying to use your smartphone. And this is the biggest problem now. We have these combinations of distracted driving, which pigeonholed into a drunk driving issue. Well, yes, the person may have been over the limit. But if they crash while using their phone, it's a distracted driving crash. It's not just a drunk driving crash. There's nowhere in the statistics to put both. So distracted driving has always been an issue that I've been talking about. And nowadays, with the fact that at the end of 2014, we reached this full saturation of smartphones, as a person of mine, a friend of mine, Verizon Wireless said, I had no idea what full saturation was. They said, oh, at the end of 14, everybody who wanted a smartphone had one, which was around 200 million. And since then, they've been fighting over each other's territory from that point. It's very interesting that at the end of 2014 through 15, 16, 17, we've had the fastest increase in fatalities and injuries that we've had in over 60, 60 years. And we are the we have the fastest, worst increase, the largest percentage increase in fatalities and injuries in the world in the last three or four years. In the world. And Derek, that's just something that it, it, it always felt to me that I should be in traffic safety. So I've made a tremendous number of educational videos uh, for people to use, for parents to use. But it essentially comes down to the fact that in the U.S. we don't have a driving test, which is very difficult. Other countries have an extraordinarily difficult driving test. It makes it you a much better driver. But the test itself is very, very difficult. Our test is easy. Over half the drivers that get a new license in the United States never get any structured driver education. So we have basic issues with the test itself. And then for me, we have the parent problem, which is in a sense, when you've got a 15-year-old now, and I, I just was in Illinois, I was 400 uh, students, and I was talking to them for 45 minutes, a great bunch of kids that really kept their attention. You know, they gave me their attention very, very well for 45 minutes. They didn't know me from Adam, most of them. You know what I mean? It was, it, so uh, it's hard. You've got to work very hard to keep the attention of high school students for, for 40, 40 seconds, never mind 45 minutes. But, but the key point there was, and I asked all of them, I said, before we get started, how many of you have never, ever seen your parents using a cell phone while driving with you in the car? How many? Two hands out of 400 students. Two. That's not unusual. And so we've got this massive... Mis misconception by parents that the kids are not paying attention. When you turn that child's safety seat around to face front, your child is starting to pay attention. And there's very good evidence, very good evidence in neuro research. And I had to look at this stuff. I'm not a genius about this stuff, but I had to figure it out because my evaluation data from 11-year-olds to 15-year-olds wasn't panning out. Something must have happened. And it was at a brain development conference that I heard someone speak and they said, basically, we have two brain growth spurts in our children, one around three and one around basically puberty. 
and at 11, 12, whenever, that, that's it. Whatever they've learned up to that point is fixed. Everything else is intervention. So this is when I basically said to myself, I have to come up with a mobility curriculum that they can use from grade four through six, and that's what I've done. So a lot of my educational materials are being used and utilized, but you have to do the research. But we have an incredibly unique problem in the United States. It really is. There's no way with the newness of our vehicles, with the kind of roads we've got. Yes, we've got potholes in some of the states. We know about the infrastructure. But compare it to most of the other countries out there that are better than us in the last four years or three years as far as keeping their fatalities down because they have a much harder driving test. I need to let parents know that you are the driver ed teacher. The biggest thing I need to help parents with is understanding that they are the driver education teacher. When you talk to parents, they believe it's peers or the driver education teacher is the biggest influence on their kids' driving. It's actually the parents. Parents have that misconception. When you ask the kids, 75% of them will say, you know, if I ask them, what's your biggest influence on your driving? Oh, my parents. There's a huge disconnect between what the parents believe the kids learn. So understanding that and knowing that over 50% of these kids will pass the test, it's so easy. It shouldn't be, but it's never going to change. You've got to understand the politics and economics behind that. It's not going to change. So understanding, I, I have to let parents know this driving test in the U.S. is incredibly easy, way too easy to be useful. They will drive exactly, your kids will drive exactly the way you do. They will drive with the aggression. They will drive with rolling through stop signs, speeding up for red lights, not paying attention, eating in the car, using the phone, etc. That's the key. So most of my educational materials, everything's free to drive red teachers to parents. And tens of thousands of driver ed teachers are starting to use my stuff in classrooms, uh, which is very gratifying because that's what I wanted. I wanted my stuff to be good enough to be used by the teachers. And I've worked with NHTSA. Uh, in the sense that I've sent all my new materials to them. They can't endorse anything. They're not allowed to. But they've been very, very kind to look at my stuff and say, we believe this is good stuff. We don't have a problem with it. That's all I, that's all I, can, that's all I, can, you know, that's all I can hope is for them to not have a problem with it. And then I, I feel comfortable showing it to parents, showing it to students, for teachers to use it. So I, I'm going to keep doing it. It's a passion. It's what I spend most of my time doing these days. And it's one of the reasons, um, you know, that I moved uh, to Bowling Green is to work on traffic safety initiative here and obviously working with the National Corvette Museum and the Motorsports Park to try and forward that uh, to help the whole country. Why not start it in Bowling Green, Kentucky? Why not? We could start it, you know, as long as it helps here, then it can probably help anywhere. Yeah, definitely grow it, grow it out. Yeah. And, yeah, we actually had an episode mm -hmm. A while back, talking about a lot of these things, you know, mm -hmm. that I, th I think we had a, a friend of, of John's on that is uh, involved in some traffic uh, education stuff. But we talked a little bit about this, the lax approach to driver's education here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you know, I, th I think we brought up, uh, I think it's Norway that has one of the most rigorous and most intensive driver's education programs where they have to be able to mm -hmm. actually drive on essentially a road course with skid pads and, mm -hmm. and be able to control the car and, yep. until they can, they don't get a license. I mean, it, it's almost sad to see how bad driver's education is here in the U.S. I would, and, yeah. you know, kind of where I was headed with that is, yeah. you know, where do you feel the biggest issue lies? Is it, you know, we just talked a lot about... Mm lax drivers training yes. programs you know yes. parents have to understand where are these issues what in the world's going on here what do you see what, essentially what you... essentially it comes back to parents 
the parents need to understand. The parents don't understand how bad things are. So it's not. I'm not saying they're all bad parents. It's like they don't know. They're not. The parents aren't driver ed teachers. They don't understand the problem. So my job is to explain to parents that we have a driving test, which is a complete joke. Your kids will drive with all the distractions and all the attitude issues that you have, if you have them as parents. And when I'm looking at 99% of every student in every school that I go to in the last three years, 99% of those kids see their parents driving distracted using a phone, 99%. It's not going to get unlearned when you have no driving test worth anything. Driver ed teachers are on the front lines. They unfortunately get these kids. These kids come in knowing they don't have a test that they even need to study for. They have no reason. They know how to drive because they've been watching their parents. So, and we don't have a driving test that's going to, going to tax them or test them or help them to unlearn anything. So essentially, the parents are the driver ed teacher. And if I can get the parents early enough, the problem is 99% of the money and information that goes into driver education for the parents is when the kids get a permit. That's about 12 years too late. If I talk to five-year-olds and six-year-olds, they can describe perfectly a tr parent's distracted driving behavior. I have it on one of my videos, that a PSA that I made five years ago, talking to seven-year-olds, and they were ratting their parents out perfectly. So the problem is we have to get to the kids earlier. The problem is the test, not so much the driver education process or the teachers. I'm telling you, these teachers will come to these conferences. I've spoken at 50 conferences in the last 10 years, at least 50 conferences. And the driver ed teachers pay their own way there. They do care. And they are, they are mortified about the fact that 85% of those kids come in with the attitude like, I just, I'm just doing my time. I can go take the test today. I don't need to talk to you. If they understand that, now it's not going to change. So when I made my video called Realities of Driving Today, it talks about this. We're basically setting them up to fail. The system won't change. It's politics and economics. If the parents, and it's sad, but the parents sense that we're going to have a harder driving test or you might raise the minimum driving age, which won't do anything to help at all, you've got to make the test harder. Never going to happen because the kid will take longer to pass the test, just like it happens in other countries. Developing and developed and industrialized countries have much harder driving tests than we do. Every single one of them. Our driving test is unique in the world for being as easy as it is. But once a parent, you talk to a parent of a 15-year-old, they'll say... Uh, I have this great information that you guys have given me about this stuff, but I haven't had a conversation worth anything with my kid in probably three or four years since they were 12 years old. And that's the truth. So if you have that issue, that disconnect, it's very difficult to have the kids understand. So I have to help the parents understand that they need to, they, they are the ones that can change this. But if I talk to a parent with a seven-year-old, the parent is way more engaged. And then if you talk to the parent of a newborn, so I've made information for parents with newborns, for parents with seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and I'm teaching my kid to drive. I had I've made information for all those. But the ones where I get the biggest turnout of parents is when I'm talking to eight, nine, 10-year-olds and we have a parent meeting after school. I'll get 100, 200 parents showing up because the kids are eight, seven years old and they want to know what's going on. I mean, it is so hard to get parents to come out when you have a high school meeting just because the kids, you know, they, it's, just, it's just the timing is wrong. So I'm pushing it back. So if I could, I've, I've talked to parents of newborns and they pay attention like you won't believe. They want every bit of information I've got. And those parents understand that when you turn that child safety seat around to face front, 
it's just we're in the wrong place. So I'm one person, one one person in, in a foundation that I started, but all my materials are being picked up, and they've been picked up by thousands of parents. But there's millions of new license holders every year. I'm just one person, so I'm I'm just doing what I can, Derek. But it, I'm making progress. I just need to do it bigger, and that's one of the reasons I'm in Bowling Green. We're gonna we're gonna make it happen in Bowling Green. Hopefully, that's why I'm spending a lot of time in Washington D.C. meeting with lawmakers just to make them understand, help them understand what I'm trying to do and get some support because it's going to be a big project, but I've got to set it up first before we get going. But I know, I know the city of Bowling Green is behind me because I met with a lot of leaders here in Bowling Green and they say, hey, when you get ready to go, we're on. I'm excited. Uh, you know, within the next year, hopefully we'll get this thing cranked up and we're going to have to do a culture change because the laws won't change. The test will not get harder. We've got to look at the politics and economics. You're just not going to suddenly have everybody passing the test at 20 years old. The uproar would be massive. Parents would say, hey, I've waited for 16 years for little Johnny to say, little Ben, to basketball practice. I ain't now waiting another four years. Not happening. Sorry, done. It's politics and it's economics. When a kid's at 16, parents are buying him a new car. Can you imagine? That shifts to 20, 19, like it is in other countries because it's hard to pass the test. Plus, it costs a heck of a lot because you've got to have 40 lessons with somebody to, to pay them. Politics, economics, understand that. That's where I'm at. So we've got to push it back. It's it's a passion. I'll shut up now. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> this this is where I get to take it off the rails, as I talked about at the beginning, because ahead, as mate. you were talking, Go ahead, mate. my yeah. mind shut down yeah. so many different paths, uh, you know, approaching this from the automotive historian side of, uh, you know, who I am. Just thinking about the automobile over the last 125 years, let's call it. That's that's a rough number. Thinking about the development of the automobile and, and the history of the automobile, thinking about the things that you just talked about, my mind immediately went to, we talked about this, I think, on the, on the show last week. It almost seems like everybody just, in America at least, looks at the car like an appliance anymore. It's just, oh, it's just another machine I have to have to do something. In my opinion, again, and, and we've lost that art of driving. We, we've truly lost driving and what the definition of driving is because you no longer have to shift the car. You no longer have to understand what the controls do. You never have to, you don't have to understand those things anymore. But does that play into a factor here? Does all of these improvements, I'm doing air quotes here for you know all the folks out listening, in the automobile, like automatic transmissions, hands-free devices like Bluetooth, all these things that are supposed to improve our driving skills. And, and we've even talked about the backup cameras and some of those safety feature, lane change warning feature. What are your thoughts? Is that is that adding to the problem? Is that helping the problem? Is it a mixture? Like what What's going on with this technology that we see change over the history of the automobile. What what do you see? What do you what do you think? First of all, I agree. Uh, yes, we have heard it, but if you if you go back to the beginning, like you said, the cars were different and difficult to drive necessarily. Techniques and improvements that have helped with safety. Airbags, no doubt about it. ABS brakes, indubitably. Better tires, better brakes. Period. Of course, stability control. One of probably next to ABS, the most brilliant thing ever. People don't even realize how many times that thing saved. There are superb technological improvements, uh, crash crash safety, uh, soft zones in the cars. Used to have, you know, the underdash was steel and would just rip people's legs apart when their legs went up underneath because it was just steel. That was terrible. Some improvements are, are brilliant. Then what, what we've got sort of is the, 
what I term enable to disable. And so the enabling of us not to have to worry about lane change, um, we've got the beep or the vibrating seat or whatever that tells us that you know we're drifting out of our lane. So we have late lane centering. We have auto brake assist because Mercedes realized back in the 90s that people weren't really depressing the brake pedal to get the 100% out of the brake system, though they added auto brake assist, which is, which is useful. But it's also a problem if, you know, somebody's following behind a person with auto brake assist and they're tailgating. Auto brake assist works like the car just hit a brick wall. But what happens is now, so what we're finding is some of the, some of the rear end impacts are massively worse than they were because tailgating is, is a sort of habitual problem because, again, we don't train people not to do it. We don't explain why you should not follow a Porsche 911, which can stop in 98 feet from 100 miles an hour, in a pickup truck, which can stop in maybe 200 feet from 60 miles an hour. There's a reason you don't tailgate the Porsche, because unless you can jump over it, there's going to be a problem. It's really about the education process. So when the new cars with the new technology, such as the auto brake assist, such as the backup cameras, are sold, Nobody really spends the time to explain to the people the upsides and the downsides. And the advertising is tragic because it shows people completely distracted. I don't care which car company it is. They're all showing these completely distracted people. And the car miraculously stops before it hits the guy walking the dogs or before it hits the guy who drops his papers or the, you know, the, the, whatever. It, it, it's just showing this stuff which is unreasonable. Because if you read page 126, subsection B4 in the manual, it says, oh, um, this, this technology only works up to 19 miles an hour with any guarantee. And if somebody right steps right in front of you, well, it will only mitigate. We don't guarantee that it will actually not be contact. It will just mitigate because it will be breaking before you would have braked. People see the ad. Nobody gets hit. Nobody, the pedestrian doesn't get hit at 15 miles an hour instead of 30 it stops miraculously three inches before hitting the dogs and the guy. And it's like, oh, I want that because I know I'm a distracted driver. It enables to disable. Friends of mine, when originally Mercedes came out five years ago with the fact that the stop and go traffic, your Mercedes could stay. And this is nothing against Mercedes. The, the, this technology is brilliant. You, you can abuse it. And uh, the car was a stop-and-go technology and maintain lane in stop-and-go traffic. So he bought the car specifically because he could work on, do his work in, in, in L.A. traffic. He got hit by somebody that did a, a lane change and his car can't evade. And somebody drifted into his lane doing a lane change, didn't see him, and hit him. And I said, well, dude, if you were actually paying attention, you would have seen the person and you either could have hit the horn or you could have braked or accelerated. Your car couldn't do that, could it? It was just ironic that he bought it to, to be distracted, and then he got hit with someone doing a lane change because none of the new cars can evade. Their only mitigation is braking. And that brings us to a whole other area. Do we need autonomous vehicles when we get there to evade? And that's a philosophical issue that's being discussed. And you're going to be able to take your historic vehicle on the road with all the autonomous vehicles. But for the next 10, 20, 30 years, there's going to be half the vehicles are going to be driven by public and half of them are going to be, let's say, fully autonomous in 30 years, maybe, there's going to be that huge crossover. And that's happening now with the technology that's in the cars, being abused by people, not being explained how to use it. And we, it's, it's adding to the problem at the moment, which is why, again, people feel safe in these cars now being more distracted. And what's happened to the statistics? 
8,000 more people a year are getting killed in the U.S. Of course, we don't hear about it on the news, right? It's not newsworthy. No, 8,000. I mean, if that was a war anywhere, that we were losing 8,000 young people who, from our armed services in a conflict somewhere, 8,000 a year, you don't think that would be on the news? Plus, one and a half million more a year than in 2014 were, were, were injured in 2017. 1.5 million more. I mean, these numbers are... We've never seen these numbers since the Second World War. That year was when a million-plus U.S. service people came back to the U.S. with money and were suddenly implanted back. We had a pretty big increase in traffic safety problems that year. That's the only year that you can compare to. If that year didn't exist post-Second World War, these numbers are unprecedented that we've seen with the increase in fatalities and injuries. It's incredible. But again, I'm, I'm one voice. It's enabling to disable. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of that going on, unfortunately, because, the, again, we're not training people how to use it because we didn't train them how to drive. We just gave them a driving license with Kellogg's cornflake packet tops, right? I mean, you know, to be cynical. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, and, and I, you know, as I said, you know, on some of the shows we've talked about this before, we get pretty cynical. I mean, it's it, it's scary. I think mm-hmm. we're, we're at a, a scary time yeah. in automotive public safety. Yeah interesting time in automotive technology development related to some of these things something as you say we need to do something something needs to change for the safety of the american public on the roads love the enable to disable kind of label on that i think i heard you mention it in one of your talks before and i probably didn't quite Mm -hmm. click with me the way it did right now so you you've got the traffic safety foundation going you're Mm -hmm. you're hoping to get out to more and more schools across the U.S. Get out parents. to more and more parents. Parents, yeah. huge. Yeah. Parents, huge. Yeah. Parents yeah. and and with those kids of all ages. That's right. the key. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. How do you see your foundation evolving with some of the technology that's changing with the automobile and you know some of your primary concerns that you address with it? Do you see your foundation changing? Do you see in some of the ways you need to teach people about the distractions of driving what are your kind of just your thoughts on what the future not only maybe of your foundation looks like drivers but also drivers you know education safe all of those things that go right. behind that what just kind of speculation i mean we don't have yeah to, you know no 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 the, the the infotainment system stuff that we have now plus the technology needs to be taught in the driver education cycle but remember uh, that's not being taught, and the states are trying their hardest to stay on top of this, but it is going at such a pace. Most states are way behind on this, uh, even if they're even addressing it. Because I was at a state conference uh, just yesterday and the day before. The questions that came up, not from me, from the driver education teachers, is what do we do with the backup cameras? A lot of driver ed teachers are covering them up when they're doing the, the driving lessons because they want the kids to know what's what. And then uh, the state person there was asked, well, should we be doing it? Should we be covering up during the test? Should we not be covering up during the driving test? What should we do? There wasn't a good answer. The answer for me is the technology is really useful, but it needs to be trained and in the curriculum that we use the technology along with the human aspect of looking, continuing to look. But they didn't have an answer. And and that's nothing against the particular state. The point is they are aware of the problem. It's very hard to get curriculums redone, to get this information out there. So for me, the fact that I am much more nimble 
on my education material, that's why driver educators are supplementing sometimes a curriculum that's two inches thick, and you get a kid for six hours on, on road and maybe 20, 25 hours in a classroom. Of, so what the teachers do, they pick and choose the bits that are going to help them pass the test. So they're looking for really good information to help these kids survive because that's what we have to do. So for me, I'm pretty much okay as far as my curriculum stuff. My stuff to get out there is okay, but I think the adaptation for the states and the test is going to be taking the good technology from the cars and explaining how we're supposed to help the kids learn. So at least in driver's education, they get an understanding of how to use the technology along with how to, to, how to pass the test and have some test questions about it. But the biggest problem is if you go to like Vermont, which I've done quite a lot of work with Vermont and New Hampshire uh, for driver education, you go up there, I mean, the cars that the kids have in the high school are very old. There's not a lot of new cars, which so you don't have the technology. It's a huge problem. So you can't have one curriculum for months, you know, or New Hampshire, major cities, uh, Boston, Mass, and then you go to other parts of Massachusetts where it's basically much older vehicles in the high schools because it won't relate. Overall education is the human factor, and that's what we need to get to. The specifics about how to teach, if you just teach people to be aware and utilize your eyes, eye scanning, situational awareness, no matter what you're doing, whether it's looking for the other distracted driver coming into your driving space or whether it's when you're backing up out of a parking spot, you understand, I cannot do it quickly. I have to basically make sure that I can see. These countermand the fact that you may have new technology that you're working around. I think it's more important to for the states to do something to include how to deal with new technology if, you, if your student has a car with it. A lot of your students at the moment don't have it. And we have to remember that the high school students, the cars they use are their cars. It may be dad's hand-me-down pickup. It may not even have ABS brakes. I think we've got to be very, very flexible. It's, a, it's an interesting conundrum, as I'll call it. With technology heading the way it is, we, you touched on it briefly a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. With everything you're doing, yeah, with not only your racing career, mm -hmm. your Traffic Safety Education mm -hmm. Foundation, mm -hmm. Your your passion of the automobile, right? What are your thoughts on where that's all possibly headed? You know, the technology is going to make us safer, Derek. There's no two ways about it. Whatever I may want to think that I'm a good driver, a fully autonomous vehicle will not fall asleep. It will not take drugs. It will not drink beer. It will not speed. It will do exactly what it's programmed to do, and it will probably not be able to evade either. Uh, and that's the problem with the crossover. So when you have the intermix of vehicles that basically can't evade, they can only brake to mitigate, that's going to be a problem. That's what happened with, uh, I think it was one of the Uber vehicles that ended up hitting something because somebody turned in front of it. All it could do was brake. You or I, potentially, if we were full, paying full attention, or some of the listeners, would have able to go left or right and maybe miss it. But the only mitigation it had was braking, and when it hit, it, it rolled onto its side. It wasn't like some major crash. There's definitely problems, but... Overall, it's going to be safer. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, appreciate you uh, taking the time, Andy, to come on and do an interview. You know, before we go, step back to Traffic Safety Education Foundation. Yes. How can people find out information about it? Yeah, and, and I don't, actually, there's one question that I get quite a bit. It's like people say, why are you in this? You know, it's like you don't even, you're not even from America. It's just a quick thing in the sense that I became a U.S. citizen in 1998. 
because people sense from the accent, you know, you, you're from England. And of course, I grew up in England. I learned to drive in England, which has given me an appreciation of a different way to be trained to drive for sure. But I did become a U.S. citizen in 1998. So this is a very, uh, it's when I say we and us, I, I, I definitely talk about the U.S. And my Traffic Safety Education Foundation is they can find me and, and find free information for their families. Remember, parents with children of all ages. And you know the biggest group that's paying the most attention now? Grandparents. So if any grandparents are listening to this and you need information because you're worried about how the grandkids are getting driven around by your own kids, just send me, drop me a message through the contact area and I can send you information and, and DVDs or tell them, tell them where they can download stuff. DVDs are kind of old century, but 75% of all the traffic safety ed, as traffic education teachers that I deal with still want a DVD, which is why I still have DVDs on there. But everything is downloadable, uh, viewable on YouTube for free. And my DVDs are free. www.tsef.org. So that's www.tommysammyedwardfrank.org. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, tsef.org. Thanks for thanks for that asking about that. That's no, very very kind of you, Derek. Thanks. And, and, and it's free stuff for families yeah. and, and teachers or even students, of course. Yeah, free stuff. And yeah. and also, I mean, if if they want to learn more about Andy Pilgrim himself, I believe it's andypilgrim.com. Yes, yes, there's yeah, that too. And there's, yeah, there's yeah. links there and, for oh, yeah. traffic yeah, safety fun. as well. Yeah, there are. There's yeah. links there for traffic safety and also, you know, fun race videos, but the race videos as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all yeah. kinds of fun stuff. Very cool. So It's been very hey, fun, man. We'll do it again. Like I say, I appreciate you taking the time. And we'll obviously put up uh, all the links on our uh, social media and our website. Uh, of course, listeners know nodrivinggloves.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at No Driving Gloves and Instagram, places like that, at No Driving Gloves. And, of course, if you want to shoot us an email, even if you want to shoot us an email to get in touch with Andy Pilgrim, nodrivinggloves at gmail.com. Appreciate you guys all listening. We will be back with another episode down the road, so have a good evening.